You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 10th day of December, 2011. I'd like to welcome all of the listeners to the podcast and invite you all, as always, to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos that I've created and conducted in the past, and links to other websites that I edit, including FukushimaUpdate.com and ClimateGate.tv. On the front page of CorbettReport.com, you can also find the Support tab, and if you click on that, you can find not only the DVDs that I offer for sale as a way of supporting the work that I do, but also a link to subscribe to the brand new Corbett Report subscriber e-newsletter, which will go out once a month, and the first edition uh, for December 2011 has already been issued and sent out to the subscribers. So once again, thank thank you one and all to those people who took the time and money and effort this week to sign up as brand new subscribers, paying 100 Japanese yen a month, just a little over $1 American per month, in order to help support this website and to keep it going and growing. And I certainly hope you are enjoying the e-newsletter with its news analysis, its commentary, its recommended reading and viewing, and its subscriber-exclusive video, as well as discounts on the Corbett report DVDs, not only the 2009 Video Archive DVD, which represents a video DVD that can play in any DVD player, that is a compilation of some of the highlights of the video work that I did in 2009, but now also the brand new Data DVD Volume 1, which is a compilation of every single podcast episode, article, interview, and video Uh, that was created by CorbettReport.com from 2007 until the end of 2008, a year and a half worth of material, literally hundreds of hours of media, all on one disc for your viewing, listening, and reading pleasure. And that is available for sale through CorbettReport.com slash support right now. So thank you one and all to all of you who have supported myself, not only monetarily, but also by investing your time and mental energy in Corbett Report Media and in other alternative media that I'm a part of or lucky enough to be associated with. And of course, to all those people who help to spread word and awareness about the information, which is really the most important thing, my hat's off to each and every one of you out there. And on that note, let's get straight into today's episode. John Kennedy, it is more an effort to teach you to read your own newspapers, things that are pertinent to all those assassinations. We'll talk about them this week. We won't go back to the past. We'll start with the, this week's news that was in your papers pertinent to each of these assassinations. But I think you should take down pencils. If I mention book titles or names or dates or newspaper dates that you can look up in the library, I don't want you to believe what I am saying necessarily. I want you to look for yourself and begin to see for yourself because it is all there. You know, we talk about the news not giving us information, and yet there's a tremendous amount of information. Even with all that's withheld, just get a picture of what's going on in this country if you begin to see it right. Right. I know. I I have a, a new... The way I read my newspaper, really? it's surprising the number of things that uh, you pick up that you do, and that I didn't ordinarily. I'll know that you're really hooked when you sit down with a scissors and a pencil and read your newspaper <laughs> and a stapler. I was watching you read the, the back page is always stapled to the front page, and uh, except the Monterey Herald, they put the news from first to second page, and it always bothers me because they're back to back. But the other. Um, 
the Chronicle, and the Mercury, I take six papers a day. I used to take eight. My research, we discussed this on the first dialogue, the basic research is done from the commission hearings before the Warren Commission met in Washington. And they had hearings of 552 witnesses. And from those hearings, they wrote up what they called the Warren Report. And the first 15 volumes are witness testimony to the assassination of John Kennedy. And the last 10 volumes are exhibits, FBI reports and Secret Service reports, State Department papers. And as we said earlier, I took all of the documents that have no table of context or index or any sense of all, they jump around from every possible place, from Oswald's grades in the fourth grade and fifth grade to State Department to Ruby and autopsies and all kinds of things. There's no order, and each volume is almost a 1,000 pages of small print. So it took me six years to complete the research that I needed to write several books, five books right now, each on a different subject. I worked, I do read the daily newspapers because if it was a conspiracy to do these murders, then certain people got into positions of power, political power, that they wouldn't have had otherwise. So the new weekly news is very important to the assassinations. Welcome, my friends, to episode 212 of the Corbett Report podcast, Remembering May Brussel. Now, for those of you who don't know, that was Mae Brussel that we were just listening to from her radio program, and she had uh, a couple of manifestations of that radio broadcast, but in one form or another, it ran for 17 years from 1971 all the way up to 1988, and comprises literally hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of hours of radio broadcasts that have been archived for the ages, and you can find out more about Mae Brussel and her work at maybrussell.com. That's M-A-E-B-R-U-S-S-E-L-L.com. And of course, the link to that will be in the show notes for today's episode at corbettreport.com. Now, for those of you who really don't know Mae Brussel at all, and I fear there are far too many in the audience who do not, Let's go to maybrussell.com to find out a little bit more about this really remarkable woman who is probably best known for her research on the JFK assassination. However, she also did quite a bit of research into the other American assassinations and into all of the various threads of the tapestry that those assassinations connect into when we start pulling out and looking at the larger picture of the New World Order. So, looking at maybrussell.com, at the About May Brussel section of that website, it reads, quote, Complacent Beverly Hills housewife May Brussel had quite an awakening in 1963 when President Kennedy was assassinated, and again when she read and cross-indexed the massive 26-volume Warren Commission hearings. She saw that the international terrorist network that had made up the Axis powers during World War II had gone underground and continued their worldwide fascist campaign, overthrowing one country after another. America was not exempt. Frustrated that this vitally important information was largely unknown to the American people, May went to her friend Henry Miller of Big Sur, California, with whom she would later later brag to friends about an affair. He told her that people can do anything they want if they apply themselves, live anywhere, learn anything. And there is nothing worse than looking back and regretting not having done what was important to you. Don't die before you're dead. 
and with that advice, May moved herself and the kids to Carmel, California, and began the selfless, non-stop journey of political and history research that would soon rock the radio airwaves of Monterey and Santa Cruz counties from 1971 through 1988. Her listeners would never be the same. While most of America slept, May saw that most anything Americana was being infiltrated, murdered, infected, poisoned, or deregulated. As May stated at the University of California in Santa Cruz, what is happening to us is a classical case of totally destroying us, and by the same people who've been at the top doing it since World War II. On May 29, 1968, May confronted Rose Kennedy at the Monterey Peninsula airport and handed her a note telling her Robert Kennedy would soon be assassinated. A week later, he was shot to death at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. May's first published article in Paul Krasner's The Realist was actually financed by John Lennon. Krasner couldn't afford the $5,000 printing cost. Frank Zappa once gave her a computer for filing and cross-indexing her research, but she never used it. Two weeks before Patty Hearst was kidnapped, May told the Syracuse University audience that the SLA shooting of school superintendent Marcus Foster was the beginning of terror and psychological sabotage in the same vein Germany had been subjected to in the 1930s. In August 1977, broadcast number 282, May discussed Jim Jones and the People's Temple move to Guyana. She speculated it might be a training camp for assassination teams. This was more than a year before 913 members of the church were massacred. Much of May's March 29, 1981 broadcast was spent discussing the power struggle within the Reagan administration and asked who will kill off their team members first. The following morning, President Reagan was shot in Washington, D.C. Her countless list of German and white Russian fascist fingerprints to Pre President Kennedy's assassination reached its peak in May of 1988 when she discovered the name Adolf H. Schickelgruber, handwritten in Marina Oswald's notebook of poetry in the Warren Commission exhibits. There were times when death threats drove May off the air. Once by Charles Manson family member Sandra Good in September 1975, Sometimes May resorted to recording her shows at home on her small cassette tape recorder and privately mailed out copies to her subscribers. In 1983, May's show was picked up by her listener-supported KAZU-FM in nearby Pacific Grove. Five years later, she was forced off the air for the last time from death threats, but continued sending out her weekly tapes to subscribers until June 13, 1988, tape number 862. May died of cancer on October 3rd of that year. She was 66. Again, that's from the About May Brussel page of maybrussel.com, and I suppose that's everything you ever wanted to know about May Brussel but never knew to ask. And I think that is a good short-form synopsis of May and her really remarkable career of research. But of course, that doesn't really do justice to the scope and breadth and depth of the information she covered in her broadcasts. And for those who have never heard May Brussel at work, well, you're in for at least a little bit of a treat today as I play samplings of some of the broadcasts that she made in her 17-year broadcasting career. But of course, it wasn't the broadcasting her itself which was really the thing to note about May Brussel. It was her remarkable research. And as I hope the opening clip in today's episode at least gives a tiny bit of a taste I, I hope people understand that she really was a researcher at heart and quite a remarkable one at that, as that clip, of course, talking about uh, the ne necessity of 
having six to eight newspaper subscriptions at any one time and reading newspapers with scissors in one hand and stapler in the other, getting ready to clip and paste and save all of those articles away for future reference. And uh, that again, that's not hyperbole. It's not rhetoric uh, there in that case. For anyone who has really researched into Mae Brussel at all, this was very much the way she operated. And in fact, her uh, voluminous research uh, just expanded to monolithic proportions. And I note that at the top of maybrussell.com right now, they're looking for uh, Brussels sprouts, which is uh, what uh, Mae Brussels uh, followers, helpers, uh, research assistants, and people who follow in her vein are referred to, uh, asking for anyone with a rent-free storage or uh, low-rent storage space or home in the uh, Santa Cruz area to, to offer them up for the 40 filing cabinets, hundreds of boxes of books, articles, and tapes that need to be categorized from her collection uh, that there just simply isn't space for. So uh, that gives at least a, a slight inkling of the incredible amount of research that Mae Brussel was involved in. But again, to get a better understanding of just how much information Mae Brussel went through at any one time, let's take a listen to uh, what is the second available recording from the collected recordings of Mae Brussel's broadcasting career. That clip that we just listened to actually represents the very first minutes of the very first available broadcast that was available on the May Brussel MP3 archive collection at maybrussell.com and more on that later. But let's switch to another very, very early episode from her broadcasting career where she's talking with uh, one of her, well, co-hosts at the time about uh, her remarkable filing system because not only, uh, it has to be kept in mind that of course she was researching and broadcasting in the 70s and 80s, of course well, well before the, the personal computer revolution or the internet or any of the other things that we take so much for granted in our day and age, especially people of my generation who at least grew up with computers to one extent or another their entire lives. Well, of course, Mae Brussel did not have access to that technology, and as a result, she had to work in a very vastly different way than you or I would work in this day and age. And to imagine how many hundreds upon thousands of articles and and newspaper clippings and books and other pieces of research she collected along the way were physically organized in boxes and things like that, it really does boggle the mind to think about how that could be done. So just to give a bit of a taste of of some of the the, the enormity of that filing and cross-indexing system that must have been in place to make all of this research possible and accessible at any one time, let's listen to a clip where she's talking to her then co-host of her radio broadcast about her filing system and a rather in, the rather ingenious lengths that she had to go to in order to create the cross-indexing system by which she could access information easily. And we'll listen to an interesting creation of a file that she had on migratory birds to do with the JFK assassination. There's a filing system for whatever your hobby is to put things in a classification where you have them that you can enjoy them and they're not just thrown in the drawer. It's fascinating, the, uh, the way you have, but you have such clever titles. That's, I think that's... <laughs> <laughs> well, I made up a few, like the migratory birds. The migratory birds. Yeah, in my, I was re- of in my research on the John Kennedy assassination, I found that as they would call a witness in and say, they'd first get his name and his occupation and what do you do, and he would say, "Well, I was a certified public accountant." And uh, how long have you lived in the Dallas Fort Worth area? And he'd say, "Well, I moved in here in April of '63, and where do you live now?" 
well, I'm living in New Orleans, and where do you work at Lockheed? And what were you doing in, in Dallas, Texas? Well, I was a garage mechanic. Or he went on to be actually a member of the Dallas Police Department. He was a certified accountant until April of 63 and was with uh, this garage where a particular rifle was in exchange for automobile parts and service car repair, and it came from the home where Marine Oswald lived. And then this particular man went on to be a member of the Dallas Police Department after the assassination. And the man that took Lee Oswald to the depository, he moved into town in October 63. And then after the assassination, he moved across the street where Marina Oswald lived. And Lee was there on the weekends and so forth. And then he left town. And I saw a pattern of witnesses called in who moved in like a military operation. They came in March, April, and May of 63. And they left in November, December 63 to take other positions, and many of them went on to defense industries, into Lockheed and Boeing, and so forth. And I had a title called Migratory Birds, which is everyone who was not established in that community one, two, three years ahead of when the assassination took place. People who came in just months before did their job split, and it became more than, I have a cross-filing of coincidences, it became more than a coincidence. It began that way that two, three people came in and four came in and left. I put on a coincidence, and then when you get 20 or 30, it becomes migratory birds. Some are pretty powerful birds, I have to tell you. They even have eagles on them. <laughs> <They're> eagles. <laughs> Those are my migratory birds. Well, just one little tiny anecdote from May Brussels, no doubt voluminous research materials, but I hope that at least gives an indication of the type of effort and lateral thinking that would have been required to maintain such a, a monstrous filing system as she had cross-indexed by name and dates and locations and all sorts of other ways, including even inventive categories like migratory birds to try to find and keep that information handy and and cross-indexed and referenced for people to find easily. Just an absolutely overwhelming amount of research and something that you will undoubtedly garner very quickly when you actually start to get into her work if you haven't already done so. And if you haven't already done so, I would once again direct you to maybrussell.com where you can get purchase a six-DVD set that contains all 17 years of her radio broadcasts, over 700 hours of media for $60, uh, $65 for residents outside the USA. And I myself purchased that uh, several weeks ago, and to be honest, I've only begun to scratch the surface of this voluminous collection of material, obviously hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of hours of audio, and it's not just any audio, I mean, it's dense, dense material that is very, very, very... Uh, it, it just overwhelmingly packed with information, so uh, each hour of listening requires quite a bit of cogitating, so I have really only begun to dip into this voluminous collection of material, but all of these uh, clips today are come directly from those discs, so once again, please go to maybrussell.com and uh, support that website, which is maintaining this this incredible collection of material, and when you or purchase your own copy, you will be able to listen to all of this, including that incredible episode that was mentioned in the About May Brussels section of the, the website that we read earlier. The March 29th, 1981 broadcast, broadcast number 486, 
in which Mae Russell really did an amazing tour de force. And this just shows how paying attention to the news week after week after week, even if the news is completely controlled top to bottom by the by the oligarchy, by the ruling uh, elite, as, as we know it is, and as anyone who listens to this podcast obviously knows it has been for for a very very long time well even that that fact even though it is controlled still maintaining a vigilant watch over it listening to the enemy as it were on a regular basis one can truly start to figure out the power structure of the society and make valid predictive remarks about that power structure, something that, again, Mae Russell did in startling fashion on her March 29th, 1981 broadcast. So without further ado, let's get straight into that clip. Well, Haig would like to take over the uh, White House and the domestic affairs, affairs, but uh, he... There were a couple of instances last week that I think stepped in his way. I think he's moving too fast, too far. There's too many of them taking position. But he really, I think because of what he knows, went on the, all these years through the White House and being there at the height of Watergate as well as every other crucial period through the 60s and 70s, he just assumed that he could walk over all the new people that are in Washington right now who haven't been there that long. Uh, the new team that uh, Ronald Reagan has appointed. And there were several things that happened before the quick announcement that uh, Vice President Bush would take over the domestic emergency uh, team that is being formed. The first story last week was one that Bush had been shot. Uh, The person was apprehended and arrested. It was taken right out of the news, and we haven't read much of that. We know Bush wasn't killed, but the person that was arrested might have told something that he wasn't supposed to say. The second thing is the hushed-up affair in Florida last week of the 13 men camouflage down in Crystal River, Florida. There hasn't been a thing in the news all week about that with their semi-automatic weapons, and uh, they were a group that allegedly were recruited by Soldier of Fortune, which is a strictly CIA organization operation of publication. And they belong to a Vietnam Special Forces group. Again, the same assassination-type team that were set up, funded through the Nugan Bank in Australia for taking over America or whatever they need to do domestically overseas. This group was headed by somebody from Birmingham, Alabama, Franklin Joseph Camper, and they had uh, guerrilla warfare manuals, automatic weapons, trained in the military and counterintelligence. They carried the usual kinds of weapons, Soviet weapons, Japanese, Israeli weapons, and were linked to the CIA and Army bases nearby. The FBI and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms haven't been alerted to arrest them. They've passed it off that they simply trespassed a little too far near an atomic energy place. But I'm not sure that they were supposed to be near an installation and just went a little bit too far over and didn't know what they were doing. I don't believe that for a minute, and these people have not made much in the news in terms of biographies or what they were doing. As I said, they worked some of the World War II and in the Green Berets in Vietnam. They could have been trained as mercenaries for United States terror or the type of Reichstag taking over a particular city or even a state or coming down with some kind of using atomic bombs to terrorize this country. It's that kind of an activity that would put Haig in office, even though uh, the line of succession doesn't go immediately to Haig. He did 
managed to take over very nicely when Nixon was eased out. And besides the uh, early rumor of Bush's death and also this uh, group of people that were apprehended just by a fluke in Florida, there was a dinner in Washington, D.C. in honor of Haig that indicates the way Haig was moving just too fast. And if I were Ronald Reagan or George Bush, I would be a little bit scared of this power. Uh, this is really a conflict between the Defense Intelligence Agency and the CIA. Haig working with a long team of Nazis from World War II, uh, people that want to control the Pentagon, the White House, versus Bush, who is more mild, went to Yale, uh, a, I don't know what kind of, he has power. He was director of the CIA, ambassador to China, wealthy oil man from Texas. But there's nothing gross or greedy. He doesn't seem to be desperate to grab the power. And Haig clawed his way all the way up to the top. Now, as soon as Ronald Reagan became president, or within two months after, there was a big dinner in Washington, D.C. for Haig. And it was reported in the Los Angeles Times Capital dinner for Haig has the Jamesons hopping. Actress and business executive Eva Gabor Jameson, whose husband is very influential with all branches of military and defense, came in from the Bahamas where they have a home for a black-tie dinner at the Metropolitan Club for Secretary of State Alexander Haig. Senator Charles Percy, the Foreign Relations Committee, was there. Admiral Thomas B. Hayward, Chief of Naval Operations. British Ambassador Sir Nicholas Henderson. Prince and Princess Yoko Trubetsky. Washington developer C. Wyatt Dickerson. Uh, the Prince and Princess, T-R-O-U-B-E-T-Z-K-O-Y is their name. Albert A. Grasselli, Vice President of International Division of Rockwell International. Frank Jameson, the host, was former affiliated with them. General Lyman Lemonser, former Supreme Allied Commander for Europe and former Army Chief of Staff. Warren Adler, who publishes the Washington Dossier and Mrs. Adler. Tunisia's Ali Heder, Hungary's Frank Esther Gallos, I'm not pronouncing that right, Jordan's uh, Fazad El Sharaf, Ireland's Seen Donlan, Admiral George Anderson, former Chief of Naval Operations and former Ambassador to Portugal, where the Jamesons also have a home, Harry Combs, President of Gates, Learjet, uh, Donald Daly, President of San Diego's Daly Corporation, Thomas Powell, President of Martin Marietta Corporation, John Winkle, Vice President of Use Aircraft, Ben Schemmer, Editor of the Armed Forces Journal, and so forth. This is a little dinner party for Haig. And I should think that with this kind of promotion of his social life and this power, you could get a coup d'etat. The one in Spain didn't work where the king was kicked out, where the military were held at bay and the uh, various forces didn't go along with them. In Chile, you did get a military junta overthrow the government that happened in South Korea. It does happen, and the United States has to face the possibility that you have a team there that are power-hungry. Democracy doesn't last forever. If there's a national crisis or an emergency, and they will create the crisis, and they will create the emergency, these people are all behind Alexander Haig. That's a lot of people, because even though Reagan has his kitchen cabinet of a few old cronies that have been with him a long time, they don't have the power of this who's who of the dinner party for Alexander Haig. I'll do more on Haig and the power struggle in the White House 
in a minute. We'll take a break now because 30 minutes has gone by, and I'll be back with you in one minute. This concludes the first half of World Watchers International with Mae Brussel. We will return with the second half after a brief pause. Once again, that is just a short sample from the Tour de Force broadcast 486 from the May Brussel Recording Archives that aired on March 29th, 1981. And as you heard there, May Brussel identified in that clip a putsch faction within the Reagan White House, within the Reagan administration, led by Alexander Haig, who had served as Deputy National Security Advisor and White House Chief of Staff in the Nixon and then the Ford administrations. He had served as the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe and then served as the United States Secretary of State, the position he was in. In at the time of the airing of that broadcast, she identified him as the leader of a possible putsch coup attempt on Reagan, and within 24 hours of that broadcast airing, what happened? The attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan. And who, in the immediate aftermath of that assassination attempt, declared that he was in charge of the White House? Alexander Haig. At the State Department, the Pentagon, and the White House today, an all-out effort was made to put in perspective and explain a remark made yesterday by Secretary of State Haig. Appearing in the White House press room shortly after the president was shot, Haig asserted he was in control. That immediately renewed speculation of a grab for power by Haig. We have a report from diplomatic correspondent Barry Dunsmore. All senior government spokesmen met this morning at the White House and the line went out that everyone was happy with the way the cabinet performed yesterday. There's absolutely no uh, criticism whatsoever of uh, what Secretary Haig did or what he said. ABC News has been told that it was this scene, Deputy Press Secretary Larry Speaks being bombarded with questions he couldn't answer, which troubled Haig and the other senior cabinet officers who were watching from the Situation Room. The image of confusion was potentially dangerous. Haig said, I think we've got to stop this. And so, as the senior cabinet officer, Haig appeared in the White House press room with his now controversial statement. Constitutionally, gentlemen, you have the president, the vice president, and the Secretary of State in that order. As of now, I am in control here in the White House, pending return of the Vice President. Haig was wrong when he said that he was constitutionally number three. He is number three in the executive branch, number five in presidential succession. However, he was correct when he said he was in control. And Vice President Bush not only thinks Haig did a good job, he doesn't think there's a problem. I have not detected, and don't, nor do I believe there's any such rift. On this occasion, there may not have been a rift, but this, on top of other recent problems with Reagan insiders, can hardly help Haig's image or his future effectiveness. Barry Dunsmore, ABC News, the State Department. So once again, May Brussel on the March 29, 1981 broadcast of her radio program, very, very, almost eerily predicted what was to come less than 24 hours later, with Alexander Haig being part of the the crew that took over in the event of the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan, which was exactly what she was talking about on the broadcast just one day previous. Quite amazing, although to be fair, she did get the Bush part of that uh, connection uh, wrong. She thought that Bush was something of an outsider and noted he did have some power being head of the CIA and um, former ambassador to China and a wealthy Texas oil man, but she didn't quite understand his 
his connections to this uh, whole affair. And of course, now with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, we do perfectly well understand that Bush was in fact an absolute linchpin in all of this. And of course, his son was to meet with the brother of the would-be Reagan assassin on that very same day. And just, uh, just one indication of the close connections between the assassin and Bush himself. And as we know, Bush uh, basically ran the Reagan administration. We know that the Reagan White House was really run out of the VP office, not the presidential office, not the Oval Office. So, so we do know that uh, that Bush had a great role in this, much more than than May was aware of at the time when she was making her broadcast. But to be fair, she did point out the rather remarkable point that even. Uh, it even Wikipedia notes on the Reagan assassination attempt a page. It says, a few days before the shooting, Vice President George H.W. Bush received the assignment of running crisis management in case of emergency. So, uh, so just a few days before the shooting, Bush was already there and ready to take over the White House. So um, just uh, an indication of what could have happened if those shots had have hit their mark or if whoever was in the the security detail did what often people in the security detail in these situations do and either allow it to happen or make it happen. So so again, very, very, very interesting. And once again, May Russell was right there in the thick of it, not only documenting it, but actually predicting it. And that's really the power that all of this research has. Of course, when someone throws themselves into the research like May Russell did and accumulates that much information, it helps them to put the pieces together and connect the dots in ways that actually are predictive. You can actually see the the arc and the trajectory of events just by researching them carefully enough, even in the controlled corporate mouthpiece media, because obviously there is information being communicated about how the power structure works in that media. And that's exactly why we heard, for example, in today's opening clip, May Brussel exhorting people to keep track of the weekly news media because they are still giving us valuable information and it it serves our ben, our it benefits us to to listen to the enemy as it were. So let's move on to something different. I could spend obviously hours or hundreds of hours documenting and then trying to unpack all of these types of programs where she goes through all of this information like on that March 29th broadcast but I think that would be a, a futile effort I think it would be an, a war that I couldn't possibly win in a short podcast like this but I would like to highlight something else the, the more, perhaps the more human side of May Brussel and something that I think all of us in the audience right now can can relate to because certainly myself have noted how people are so quick to accept the official story on whatever story might be going through the media at any given time without having done any research for themselves or having even thought about what's going on or tried to look into what's happening. Just whatever the first story is out on any given thing, such as the Reagan assassination, people will tend to swallow it hook, line, and sinker. And of course, this is something that May Brussel had to confront, just as each and every one of us out there who knows that there is much more going on than we can read about just in the headlines on any given day. Well, we all have to confront this at some point. The people who just will not and refuse to look at any information outside of what's acceptable by the boundaries of mainstream media discourse. And of course, May Brussel herself had to deal with that in the wake of another very, very important event that happened during her years on the air. Of course, she is most famous for her JFK, RFK, MLK assassination research. But it has to be remembered that the 70s and 80s themselves were quite tumultuous political times with lots of big events, not only the attempted assassination of Reagan and 
the downing of KAL 007, of course, with Larry McDonald, which we talked about on a previous episode of this podcast. But also, of course, as we've just seen the 31st anniversary tick by, the, the shooting on December 8th, 1980 of John Lennon outside the Dakota in New York. And that is, of course, a story that Mae Russell was there and covering. And so I went to the archives and listened to the few broadcasts that she made in the immediate wake of that shooting. And it, this particular piece from the, the week after the shooting, the first broadcast that she made after John Lennon was shot down in New York, I, this little piece caught my attention because I, I think it's something that we can all relate to on a human level when we're trying to deal with this information and trying to read past and read through the headlines to what's really happening under the surface. Well, I think we've all reached the point that May Russell reached in those dark hours after the shooting of John Lennon. I was upset about the Lennon shooting on uh, Tuesday morning. I came into KLRB just to walk around and mainly to get out of the house because the phone had been ringing since 11 o'clock at night. And by three in the morning, I fell asleep and it started. I came into KLRB and one of the people that uh, works here that I've known over the years right away said to me, you know it was one lone person. Well, I would accept the fact that one lone person killed John Lennon after I investigate the facts. But there's something I don't understand, and that is how people can solve a crime in 12 hours. They must know a lot more than I know, but they don't have the library I have. I have many, many books on Operation Mind Control, the CIA involvement in mind control, the CIA telling people to kill themselves, the control of Candy Jones, how she came to California and took on two personalities, how she was told to murder herself in Paradise Island. They say this boy shot John Lennon because he was suicidal. The CIA trains you to be suicidal. You, you can be perfectly normal until they get their hands on you, and then they teach you how to be suicidal. You don't shoot John Lennon because you're suicidal, and you don't travel across continents, go to New York and staying at the $81 room hotels and back to Hawaii and back to New York. And the thing that I really get upset about it doesn't really matter. I'm going to do my work no matter what, and there's some people that know what's going on in the world, and there's some that never will. But it just really blows my mind that 13 hours after somebody as irreverent, anti-establishment, anti-war as John Lennon is, was, uh, can be gunned down, and the willingness of people to accept the fact that the case is solved in 12 hours. I just, it happens over and over again. I don't understand it. At least study how this fellow got to London, how he got to Southeast Asia, what he was doing in Hawaii. Even this great uh, Chicago Tribune article doesn't explain. They said they don't know how he got to Hawaii. Who met him there? What was his wife doing there? Is she an agent? All these questions beg to be answered over and over and over again. And it isn't simple. There are not simple answers. And the fact that the world is grieving for John Lennon so badly means that he touched us. And if he touched us that badly, who else was he touching? Whose shoes was he stepping on? Because not everyone sees the world as you see it or May Brussels sees it. A lot of people see it a different way. 
Well, once again, I think that's something that we can all relate to, certainly myself, who is constantly astounded to see how quickly people are willing to buy on to the official story of events, no matter how quickly they are propounded or how little evidence they have accompanying them. And for example, earlier this year, I was once again gobsmacked to see how many people were fully willing to sign on to the alleged killing of the alleged Osama bin Laden, despite all of the bizarre pieces of the that puzzle that just did not fit together and the almost farcical self-parodying nature of the entire event with the the dumping of the body at sea before anyone could see it and the refusal to show photos and all of the other pieces of that story that just make it absolutely amazing to me that people will just buy onto it because it's being propounded by people in positions of power so how could they possibly be lying or covering up the truth So again, that's just an example from my own recent past where I can very much relate to what Mae Brussel was talking about there. And again, she is talking advisedly because, again, she had voluminous research on on the killing itself of, of John Lennon and on his killer, Mark David Chapman. And for... More on Mark David Chapman and just more more on his past and his shady connections than you will ever see in a lifetime's worth of mainstream media articles. I wholeheartedly, absolutely, and unreservedly recommend the very next episode of the May Brussel uh, Radio Archives. That was from 471 and was in the immediate wake of the slaying. In 472, she does a part two of the John Lennon uh, assassination, and I really do recommend listening to that because just so much information about Mark David Chapman that, again, you just won't hear in any short-form biography that they put on the mainstream media. And so many things about that story, again, just don't add up. And now we we know, for example, that the doorman at the D- Dakota was an ex-CIA agent. I mean, it just doesn't get any stupider than that. Um, but again, it's the kind of thing that, uh, that people are willing to sign on to and say, absolutely, whatever the establishment is saying, we must believe it right away. Because what does it mean if they are lying to us or keeping the truth from us? At any rate, that is Mae Brussel. That is some of her work. That is who she was and what she was talking about to at least a tiny, tiny, tiny extent. And again, I can only give the barest glimpse of her work in an episode like this. But let's move on from Mae Brussel herself to people who knew Mae Brussel. And it was my pleasure and honor earlier this week to talk to one of those so-called Brussels sprouts, one of the research assistants who were following in the wake of Mae Brussel and helping out with her research. Robert DeFord, a man who was who met Mae Brussel in the early 1980s and was assisting her in one of her research interests that was really coming up to the fore in 19, the 1980s about a man named Fritz Kramer, which is the name not only of a, a, a very senior person in many different administrations, someone who had a lot of pull in Washington and who was, in fact, the, uh, the man who discovered the young protege Henry Kissinger back in the 1940s, but also happens to be the same name of a Waffen-SS general. And uh, it was May Brussels, one of her quests to try to see if that Fritz Kramer was indeed the same as the Nazi Fritz Kramer. And there were some very interesting things that they uncovered in that case. And Robert DeFord was helping her with that. Ultimately, they were never able to definitively conclude that they were one and the same person, but they did uncover an awful lot of very interesting things along the way. And Robert DeFord 
uh, talked to myself earlier this week about Mae Brussel and her work. And of course, that interview is available in its entirety on CorbettReport.com. So I hope you will go and listen to the entire conversation. But right now, let's listen to a short excerpt from that conversation in which I ask Robert DeFord about the other Brussels sprouts, the research assistants, and others who have taken up and carried on the May Brussels legacy. And we also talk about May Brussels' surprising connection to Larry Flint. Dave Emery has carried on May's work in a truly significant way. Um, he, He has a radio program once a week, um, and there again, you can go to his archives on the internet and listen to hundreds of hours of analysis. And he had a brain, he has a brain much like May's, very, very brilliant, uh, radio voice, good radio voice, good, um, uh, good sense of humor sometimes. Um, and his, his work, in my opinion, uh, is close to Mays uh, had, and carried it on, took the tendrils of it, the roots of it, and carried it on and updated a lot of her material and uh, has kept that fire burning uh, more than anyone I know that I can think of. Um, there were others. Um, John Judge uh, worked closely with May. He inherited her entire library after she passed away. And we loaded everything up from her house, all these filing cabinets and her entire library. I took it to Santa Cruz, California, where John Judge hoped to put together a a museum or a, a resource center of May's work. Well, unfortunately, that didn't work out. There was some internal conflicts uh, between Dave Emery and John Judge, sort of like a family feud. Uh, So that project didn't get off the ground, so we had to take all that material down to Santa Barbara and try again in another facility under another organization, and that didn't go very far. Then all that material went to another (laughs) uh, person, uh, I forget her name, Virginia Tim Canale knows her a lot better than I do, but she inherited everything again. And now, apparently, she's looking for some place to have it finally put uh, put to rest or, or, let's say, finally put into the hands of someone who can make it available to people. Uh, and uh, maybe it would be valuable or useful um, information uh, for people who are dedicated to this kind of research. Uh, a lot of it would be outdated, but a lot of it would not be because she kept such a careful filing of every single newspaper article, every single magazine, every book, everything she could get her hands on were archived and uh, organized, highly organized. So <clears throat> that's another uh, big question what what will happen to her largesse her her life's work it's uh, as far as i know it's languishing in someone's basement up in the bay area san francisco bay area and uh 
maybe someday there'll be a sugar daddy come along and say, hey, I'll take care of all this for you guys. And uh, maybe it'll be uh, well-preserved and uh, and uh, staffed by a few people and uh, made available again. Uh, she's got all the radio shows, which Tim Canale has uh, generously put into uh, DVDs so people can order her entire, almost almost all of her seven, between seven and 800 hours of radio programming. He has, he published on a DVD, you can see it at maybrussell.com. You can order very inexpensively, uh, along with the video he did of May Brussel, the only uh, video documentary we have of her was a lecture she gave at UC Santa Cruz, and we were able to get our hands on that hour-long, grainy, uh, kind of a Mickey Mouse camera that happened to be there that night and catch her, and Tim was able to make a beautiful documentary out of using using that footage, but also uh, integrating a lot of documentary footage that he found about the, the subject matter that she would mention. So he would cut into um, the um, film of, say, Dulles, uh, Alan Dulles, or Kissinger, or or Hitler, or World War II. He, he would integrate uh, footage a few seconds of these various subjects that she would bring forward in that lecture in, at, at UC Santa Cruz. So that's an, a very, very valuable uh, insight into Mae Brussel uh, that, uh, that Tim created. He's a documentary, video uh, documentarian and uh, archivist for, for Mae Brussel's work. And his website's a fabulous resource. I'll say it again, maybrussell.com, pretty simple. Uh, place to go and visit and see the stuff she wrote and people have written about her and uh, she worked very deeply with Jim Garrison on his investigation in New Orleans of the of Clay Shaw and the conspiracy that was patched in Texas and New Orleans to assassinate Kennedy and you probably saw your listeners and, and you no doubt have seen the movie JFK an excellent uh, attempt to awaken that interest in that in that terrible subject. So, May Brussel, uh, her website that Tim has created uh, has very uh, voluminous amount of information and material and and people that loved her and wrote about her and uh, plus all the uh, radio shows. He didn't get all of them. He's missing maybe a dozen out of her whatever, was it 20 years, James, that she did radio? Yeah, I believe um, going on 20 years anyway, something like 17 years, yeah. 1971 to 1988. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, well, thank you for your interest in her and your own interest. I haven't, I don't know you very well. I just met you, but uh, I'll hang out on your website. And, uh, <laughs> well, I do appreciate that, but certainly I think uh, some of my research interests uh, co-align with, with Mae Brussels, although, of course, I wouldn't compare my work to hers in any way. Her research is really exemplary, 
And and as you mentioned, um, uh, people can go to maybrussell.com to order. There's a six DVD set with all 700 hours of, uh, of radio recordings. And also um, you can get a, there's a 9-11 television coverage DVD that you can get with that as well. And uh, I personally did order that and I'm just just starting to sort of dip into the archive i mean it's such an overwhelming amount of material that it's difficult to even know how to really approach it but um but certainly i wouldn't be recommending it to people if i didn't buy it myself and i certainly just did so um but but on that note i mean we can access and we can have some sort of uh access to her work through the through the obviously her radio archives and all of that voluminous material that thankfully has been recorded for the ages and is now being distributed through maybrussell.com although it's um it's painful to think of her entire archive just sitting in a basement somewhere. It's absolutely horrid to think of. And I, I certainly hope that doesn't end up in the wrong hands of someone who's not going to be interested in preserving and maintaining that information. I hope someone can can do something useful with that. But but of course, we can access the work to a certain extent in that degree, but we'll, we'll obviously never be able to access May herself. Are there any stories that you have that, that uh, summarize May's character or who May was as a person? Well... <clears throat> There's one kind of interesting story about May and her work with uh, um, Larry Flint, the publisher of Hustler. Um, She worked closely with Larry because Larry was determined to get a... He was very, very uh, uh, concerned about the Kennedy assassination. He tried everything he knew how to do to expose the conspiracy behind it in a lot of his hustler magazines and, it was, and he was making quite a uh, um, quite a lot of noise and attracting a lot of good attention to um, a lot of the uh, uh, subjects that May was covering so they they got together and collaborated and uh, uh, Larry Flint published a magazine called The Rebel and May had the inaugural issue. She was chosen by Larry to to write for the maiden issue of The Rebel. And it was a short-lived magazine that uh, unfortunately uh, died a very quick death, so to speak. Uh, I think it maybe was seven or eight issues only. Uh, came out once a month, I think. But the first issue, she first she set herself down for the first time to write in length her view of the Kennedy assassination, the overview. She always wanted to write a book and never quite had the time. But when she was asked by Larry to 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 write something for the magazine, it's when she wrote the, uh, the Nazi connection to the JFK assassination. Uh, which you can find at maybrussell.com. The magazine itself is rare because it, uh, it, uh, it, it didn't last very long. It was a beautiful effort on Flint's part to write, to do nothing but write, uh, newsworthy information. There was, it was not a smut magazine, had no, uh, beautiful women undressed or anything like that, uh, at all. Uh, it was purely on par with, say, Time Magazine without the ads. It was strictly his attempt to to get out pure information about uh, the various conspiracies, and uh, mainly though the 
Kennedy assassination. And what you may already know uh, is that Larry Flint was shot, and that's why he's in a wheelchair today. Uh, he, he was It was an effort to assassinate him when he got so vocal about the Kennedy assassination. And so he was crippled by... Uh, uh, by a bullet in his uh, spine. So, but he's carried on as best he could, can, as best he, as he can over the years, um, with, in serious pain and on lots of drugs. And they tried to warn him that some of the people who he was inviting to his house, uh, were, were intelligence people and that they were not, his, shouldn't be considered his friends and he wouldn't listen to her all the time. So, because a part of the time, I think he was uh, sort of doped up with painkillers and whatever. But unfortunately, uh, their relationship kind of petered out, and uh, the magazine didn't didn't really fly very far, very fast. And it, uh, after I think six or seven issues, uh, went bye bye. So. That uh, is one story I like to tell because, generally speaking, Larry Flint's not known for his serious uh, investigations or research, but he had a, he has a serious side, and he tried to he tried his best to do his best to to get that information out to the public, uh, and make a mark, and uh, made did everything she could do, and she did right. Finally, it, it caused her to write the best thing she had written on the subject and the most lengthy uh, essay on the Kennedy assassination. Otherwise, you'd you'd have to listen to seven or eight hundred hours of (laughs) Mae Brussel to glean uh, her thoughts on uh, and her research on the Kennedy assassination. Once again, that was Robert DeFord talking about the legacy of Mae Brussel. Now, of course, no mere podcast episode could ever seek to do justice to the memory of any human being, let alone one as dynamic or as full of life as May Brussel undoubtedly was. But at least, at the very least, I hope I have piqued the interest of those in the audience who have not yet heard of May Brussel or encountered her work. And I hope you will go and seek it out and seek out more information at maybrussell.com and perhaps order the radio archive to help support those people who are carrying on that legacy. And of course, if there is anyone in the Santa Cruz area who would be able to take on the incredible task of housing that 40 plus filing cabinets and all of those boxes of books and material that she's accrued over the years. If there's someone who'd be willing to help out with that, of course, you can get in touch with the founder of the maybrussell.com website and contact details are there on the website. But again, I am only hoping that I am able to introduce people who have not heard of Mae Brussel before to her work and commit it to you as another excellent tool in the arsenal, another piece of the puzzle, another researcher who has gone along before us and done a lot of the heavy lifting so the load is just a little bit lighter in her wake. And certainly with the amount of research that Mae Brussel did, we are all indebted to her work. That's it for this week. I am your host, James Corbett, asking you to join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report.